Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Magnum Reads, or known this week as the Commune for the Cacophonous Consonants and Circumlocution. We are back for another episode of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. With me, of course, are BJ. Say hi, BJ. How's it going? And Sarah. Hey, Spencer, what are we circumnavigating? Circum... Circumlocution. Okay. Circumlocution. All right. Making a certain degree of mockery of my own love of alliteration. It's because circum the C in circumlocution is not a hard C, and he, the rest of them were. You know, BJ, if you'd like to take up this job, I'm happy to pass it off to you at any point. But for right now, I will, I will carry the torch. Uh-huh. Fair enough. Uh, Sarah, I believe this is your ship in terms of the uh, planning and organizing and discussing Midnight in the Garden. So how are we handling week number two? So I think week number two in Midnight of the Garden of Good and Evil um, is going to be very much character-based and kind of doing a deep dive into some of the character studies that really, I think, are the engine that drive the book as a whole. Um, So last week, we spent a long time talking about the plot that doesn't really matter. And um, if you haven't listened to that and, uh, you know, you like my stellar recommendation of our content from last week, you should go, you should go back and look at, listen to that. But, um, you know, I think now this week, we're really going to be able to get kind of into the meat of the writing and into the meat of the story itself, which is very much driven by the kind of eccentric, grotesque, very specific um, characters that um, John Barrent cre- not really creates, but um, records, I suppose. Um, so we will do a little bit of that before we get into the idea of the city of Savannah itself as a character. Sounds, Sounds like a good plan to me. And yeah, this is a, as we discussed last week, is a very oddly structured book in the sense that kind of the main plot, if you want to call it that, is introduced in the first chapter. But then about the next 200 pages is just little character studies of him slowly getting to know the characters and faces of, of uh, the city of Savannah. And I think we were all in agreement that that like 200 page chunk is just the best part of the book and it's just awesome. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and I guess I, I figured to go along with this. I pulled up the um, IMDb page for the movie. Yeah. um, Which I think is... The cast list. Yeah, the cast list and and the characters within the movie, which I'm sort of looking at and I'm like, well, I recognize some of these names. I was going to ask about that because I was having trouble today, kind of, I was trying to come up with a list of the characters that we were going to talk about while I didn't have the book in front of me um, and was finding myself like, miss it i knew i was missing a lot of characters um and so i was thinking about going to the movie page to see if that would kind of jog my memory Doesn't ended up really not help. doing so <laughs> glad i didn't waste my time doing that yeah um wouldn't highly highly recommend um i i definitely am kicking myself for not as i was going through and reading um mm-hmm. the book jotting down the characters as i have with uh, some of the past um but but yeah it's um a little disappointing honestly if memory serves from last week, you were rather you did not necessarily approve of their casting of Kevin Spacey as Jim Williams and um, uh, Kiefer Sutherland as uh, what's his name, Danny. Um, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, I'm kind of curious where you got Danny um, from, but anyway, um, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into well, it. So I'm blanking on the names of characters already. Well, well, and I think no, Danny is the name of the character. Is it right? But, is it Kiefer Sutherland that you're questioning? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so the the person that I assume has filled the role 
of Danny Hansford is now Billy Hansen. Um, possible I'm wrong. It's been years since I've seen it. Um, and that was played by Jude Law. Um, so I, yeah, I, maybe you're confusing Jude Law and Kiefer Sutherland. I mean, they look, I don't think I would confuse those two. I could just be plain wrong. Um, I I think defaulting on plain wrong is probably easier. You don't need to give me an out there. Okay. Um, I'm also kind of curious. I assume John Kelso is, uh, John Barrett. Um, and that was, and the, I guess the, the author is played by John Cusack, which I guess I don't know how I feel about. I, I think I have no opinion there, but um, the Kevin Spacey Jude Law thing, I feel like makes a little bit more sense. I think Jude Law as a um, heartthrob in the late 90s makes a lot more sense than Kiefer Sutherland. But Sarah, I feel yes. like you have a much more valid opinion. <laughs> I knew this was coming. Um, I don't know that I have an opinion on this specific question. I do have an opinion in terms of casting on the Lady Shabley being played by mm-hmm. the Lady Shabley um, in the movie, which I think is extraordinary. And although I have not seen the movie, uh, Lee has, and he guarantees me that she is a scene stealer in every sense of the word. Based on the just true scale of her character it's depicted in the book, I cannot imagine anyone other than her playing her. I don't imagine anyone else exists. I feel, I feel like there are some people that have could have fulfilled the role, but I am very happy that she did. And I hopefully at some point will uh, avail myself of the movie, though I think that would be a, a lot of fun to uh, watch as a group and, and maybe... Uh, have some have some notes and opinions on it after having read the book Um, yeah i was going to ask about a sort of like film film club offshoot for this particular um for this particular work given that we have referenced the given that we have referenced the movie both weeks now i'd be fine with rewatching it said it's been long enough i barely remember it Yeah, that, that, that definitely sounds like it would be uh, quite a bit of fun. Um, maybe we can have that as our like third or fourth episode or maybe uh, briefly come back to it after having read some short stories. And, and yeah, we'll definitely see. But it um, sounds like a lot of fun. But as we are wont to do, we keep talking about all sorts of other things <laughs> rather than the thing that we said that we're actually going to talk about, um, well, which is the characters of the book. Well, which character would we like would we like to start with if we're going to focus on all the various secondary characters that make the world go around? Yeah, so last week we really talked about those kind of main plot-driving characters. So we talked about Jim Williams and Danny Hansford, of course, and a little bit about the narrator, although I think that there is more to be said about the narrator um, later. Um, and we talked a little bit about Sonny Seiler, but I, you know, I don't think that we have dug quite as deeply into that character as um, as he warrants. Um, but I, I he does think, come later, like, in the book. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that uh, maybe an entertaining thing that we can close the episode with is a uh, scoring of the lawyers um, by our own uh, legal nerd bitching. Sure. Yeah, I, I would Spencer, love y'all's will, opinions on them, actually. I, I think you are the legal the legal nerd um, who will be doing the bitching, Spencer. But both of those terms are true independently, <laughs> but yes, I'm down for it. Um, okay, so as, as we kind of mentioned, we get this hint of what that kind of plot that we covered last week is going to be 
at the beginning of the book um, when we are introduced to Jim Williams and we are introduced to Danny Hansford and they have a sort of violent interaction, a violent and confusing interaction at the beginning of the book. Um, mm -hmm. And then, as you mentioned, BJ, we really drop them for yes. a pretty a good, substantial like 30% amount of, of time. Book. Yeah. So do we want to go kind of chronologically in terms of who we're introduced to? Yeah, that definitely. I, th I think that will make the most sense. And then okay. so like they come in and out a little bit, but for the most part, we can tell each character's story and sort of their interactions with the author and sort of any other side interactions that they have, I think, relatively in a relatively straightforward manner. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So we leave this kind of like in Medea Reyes kind of thing that we were in to try and get a little bit of background it, it seems when we leave Jim Williams and Danny Hansford that we are we are leaving with the narrative to get a little bit of background on them, although it kind of w widens out quite quickly from there, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, it leads you in a direction and says, well, this is what's going to happen. Oh, by the way, that's a dirty, dirty lie. That is not <laughs> at all what's going to happen. You're not going to get background about the case, about Jim Williams, about anything else. We're going to talk about the the wonderful people that make up the uh what savannah is mm -hmm. um, and i think it's a great thing but i, th I think that the teaser of um it, it actually reminds me of a lot of uh like 80s probably 90s tv shows where it's the here's a situation pause it you know, maybe you were wondering how this situation came about, and then it gives you the background. And it's a there's very this... kind of like how I met your mother kind of thing, right? Yeah, how I met your mother. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of other like serials that that sort of mm -hmm. had that um, kind of uh, gimmick, and I feel like this had that gimmick. And then it was just like, all right, well, let's pause this story. And now let me tell you about, you know, Joe Odom and Lady Chablis. And it's just like, well, what do they have to do with the murder? Absolutely nothing, but they're wonderful <laughs> stories. And they're what I would prefer to be writing about anyway. I just happen to be hanging it on the, the sort of structure of this yes. like relatively right. thin murder case. I think we joked last week that he probably got a certain degree of permission to write the book and maybe even spend as much time in Savannah because a murder happened. And then it gave him an excuse to write about what he actually cared about, the city of Savannah. Yep. So the first kind of secondary character that we meet, um, and you all can tell me the extent to which you want to talk about her, but we, we actually meet, and I had forgotten about this until I was re-looking at it today, is Mary Hardy. Mm-hmm. Who leads him on the first tour of the town. Which is a very sort of particular and individual tour that she seems to give herself. Yeah, it, it, I, th I think kind of, the, mm -hmm. I was going to say quickly, I think this kind of typifies um, explaining to people what something the South can be like, mm -hmm. where, you know, a lovely older lady just like takes you by the hand and is just like, okay, honey, like clearly you don't fit in here. Let me help you. And it's interesting because the way that she describes Savannah as they are doing this sort of like trek through it seems to be the way that the narrator it, it seems to really kind of stick in the narrator's head and kind of become his framing for savannah as well because the same type of language is what he returns to at the very end of the book um, very much so when he is discussing kind of what he has learned about savannah it's really the same stuff that mary hardy told him at the beginning of the book 
And so, oh. you know, she she really talks about Savannah as being this very not backwoods, but isolated place and both isolated historically, but then also kind of in more recent history, a place that has chosen to be isolated um, from its surroundings, from the sort of larger um, growth and decline and growth of the South as well, that it has always been doing its own thing um, and now continues to thrive on that kind of like identity of doing its own thing. I think the word she uses is uh, oasis. Mm -hmm. And I think it really accurately summarizes her mindset is that Savannah is the crown jewel. Everything else around is just unnecessary. They don't need the outside world. They don't particularly want it because they have everything they could need or desire inside and they can draw from within. And I, we're also introduced to the squares. Yeah. And I, I think in many ways, the description of the squares kind of entranced me as something that Mm -hmm some that i haven't really experienced in the u.s um it 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 is very entrancing when you're walking through them and being there um and so this is sort of the first place that the the feel of the city comes about in um the his uh tour i guess of savannah Mm mm-hmm she describes how the city was originally planned out by uh, Oglethorpe to be built like a Roman military camp with little squares with houses ringing them all over the city. And that there's, I think she said, more than 20 that still remain or two dozen that still remain of the, uh, the uh, they've been able to preserve. And yeah, over the course of her tour, she really, she kind of goes into the two pillars that he really sticks with, the three principles that stick with him about Savannah, that they are a city that's very much associated on the small pleasures of where Upon taking the tour, they're driving. She packs a collection of, what is it, margaritas that's just there with them as they're going in a big picture? I think it's martinis, but yes. Martinis. <laughs> they're, they're slightly different, <laughs> Spencer. I will, will excuse your, <laughs> your lack of knowledge about being... Uh, BJ, I realize you ha- that you, you just chug things, Spencer, but... Um... <laughs> you, you know, the real fault here is with BJ. He has yet to mail me either martinis or margaritas, so I know the difference between them. <laughs> if, if he had taken the effort to do this, I would not be ignorant in this regard. Okay, so so we're going to uh, break the, the, the walls of the podcast a little bit. Um, and we'll go towards a little bit of whiskey on the weekends where we're, we're drinking different things and Spencer's being introduced to a lot of different alcohols and, and those, and actually on this podcast, we talked about meeting on, uh, New Year's, um, and we, we sort of all get together and spend a lot of time with each other. Spencer, I think you know Mm -hmm. what's about to come up in your next New Year's and you're asking. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I don't even think we need to wait that long. If we want to do a Savannah-themed whiskey on the weekends, I'm down. If we want to do the drinks <laughs> of the South for, for for a special occasion, that'd be fun. So, so yeah, I'm sure and we the can margaritas do make like a that. surprise appearance. Yep. Oh, they have to now. They're part of the book. That, that's Spencer's uh, Hispanic uh, upbringing. <laughs> okay, in terms of literal South, they're down here. They are a Southern drink. Yes, yeah, Spencer. Um, okay, moving on. <laughs> So alcohol, um, very much, I want to I even say, but very much focused on just being oasis, cutting themselves off from the world, and also very much focused on the past and even on death, yeah. where most of her accounting of things is about the various historical roots of the city. And one of the first things she wants to do is to take him to see the dead, which is a very classic Southern Gothic kind of thing to do. But it's interesting that, as you said, Sarah, that how much of this story in this first chapter is really... I, I wonder how much he planned this out in terms of how he was going to write it, but uh, I assume he did. That so many of the themes, so many of the discussions, even the locations of the first chapter 
are directly brought back into the, at the end of the story, including even the very graveyard that he ta- that uh, she takes him to. Yeah, I mean this this chapter and this anecdote, and it's a it's a relatively short one, especially in the context of the rest of the book and the rest of the characters that get more fleshed out. Um, is really the kind of the callback the callback chapter. It sets up, as you said, Spencer, really everything else that happens, um, and it gives you the kind of deep. You may not know it in the moment of reading it, but it gives you the deep understanding of Savannah and its wants and needs and expectations um, that the rest of the book really functions on. Yeah, and I, I think that this is a very good example of foreshadowing um, where there are stories that you kind of expect it, and this was not one of them for me. Like, I remembered that, you know, we already sort of saw the graveyard, which is literally the whole, the title of the book. Um, but when we get this sort of initial viewing of Savannah, that was not at all on my mind. And Is it? What? Is it the same graveyard that we ultimately go to with Minerva? I thought so. I think there are two different s- graveyards. I think okay, this, maybe, this yeah. is the same graveyard that we go to with Danny um, in that very disturbing scene that we talked about last episode. Oh, okay. Um, right. But I think but that the graveyard the same... that Minerva goes to is a different graveyard. Okay. This is the graveyard that Minerva takes us to at the end, though, because Danny is indeed buried back in this graveyard. Right, so it is the calling back at the end of the story. Being, well, presumably very proud. I guess we have no way of knowing. Um, but Ma- he said he was Minerva's... going to be buried there. Yep. Yeah, we'll get to it, but it seemed like Minerva thought that he that well, even if he might have been proud, he was still only wrapped up in rage. But we're yes. we're, we're, we're we're jumping characters yes. again. Well, so one of one of my favorite things about this um, vignette that we get is the once again, it's an introduction that comes up relatively frequent frequently throughout the novel. But they're just the casual shade that is thrown on all kinds of other southern c- cities. Um, particularly Charleston, and yeah. it just makes me so happy. But my one of my favorite things um, that Mary says in her kind of introductory spiel is um, when she's talking about the sort of the party culture that is Savannah, mm-hmm. um, which is very different than the party culture that, um, as someone who works around and in universities, I think of when I hear that term. Um, <laughs> We have, so she says, we have a saying. If you go to Atlanta, the first question people ask you is, what's your business? Mm -hmm. In Macon, they ask, where do you go to church? In Augusta, they ask your grandmother's maiden name. But in Savannah, the first question people ask you is, what would you like to drink? Yeah, it's a wonderful quote. I like this city already. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to get the pot on the road. And I love the various stories that she says to, to represent that. I mean, just even the little things like, you know, about the old ladies being the rum runners back in Prohibition, that they were even giving alcohol out of the freaking gas pumps just to make sure it was always available. Mm-hmm. And the so, somewhat haunting story she tells about the eternal party, about yeah. that that old, old plantation that was burning down, and so they just moved the celebration outside and smashed their glasses against the tree. And people can still hear them in revelry now many centuries later. And it's fascinating so. because it is like that is a story of haunting, which is of course a very Savannah thing. Um, we are very much in the Southern Gothic, but even as she's telling it, it is at least it doesn't strike me. It is not a sad story. 
Like this is still very a kind of story of reveling. We're going to meet her a little bit, but it almost reminds me of the Principal Pine, Lady Chapelis, Two Tears in a Bucket, Motherfuck It. It's Mm -hmm. just a, okay, tragedy's happened, give me another drink, life goes on, let's celebrate it as it comes. Uh, What do you think about, uh, one of the first things she takes him to when she takes him to this uh, cemetery is, and if you die while you're here, we'll put you in this tomb. Isn't it so generous that we set this up for for various visitors to our city when they die? Is this a certain degree of uh, joking hazing on her part, I guess, about uh, bringing the uh, bringing the foreigner to come see his, the place of his ultimate demise? I mean, wait, when you say his ultimate demise... What she's you know, taunting with the possibility of, rather than him ultimately dying. Presumably John Barrett is still alive. Um, I, I think it sort of has to do with the, uh, the general obsession of death that I think the book has to a certain extent, and... and rather than the all right you 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 might actually die here yeah i don't think she's seriously pondering that but it, and just the mere fact that she chose to take him to meet the dead is one of the first places that's the first place they essentially go when they're touring the city it just shows how much they are their culture and their life is steeped in the past and the, those who went before but i think the other thing that is kind of important well i guess something that i've kind of noticed is that the the number of churches and churches being sort of impressive architectural buildings in the south and being very old and having impressive graveyards is just something that i am not as accustomed to being from um well not technically the north and not technically the south um and it was i think that gives a better sense of what the city is rather than um some of the other places that she could have taken him and so Mm -hmm. like the squares and the graveyards you know rather than like all right well we're gonna take our drinks into the church and i'm gonna show you you know the pews and the architecture here like you can see the church and and see like the the outside of it and the thing that's outside of it is is the graveyard yeah i mean it's it's an interesting kind of thing in these particular types of southern cities like Savannah, like New Orleans as well, that like churches are super super important, um, but not necessarily like the inside the inside of churches. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the presence of them, sure, um, but not to the extent that we're necessarily going to spend a whole heck of a lot of time like in them. Yeah, and actually, I have. Uh two somewhat significant experiences of Charleston, one which uh, Spencer was a part of, and I can more vouch for the where do you go to church and and things like that being more important to Charleston. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually was there on an interview at um, University of uh, South Carolina, and then we were also there for a friend's wedding where we got to experience the inside of a very old church in the dead of summer without air conditioning and being of whatever faith uh it was um and so yeah it, it was um it makes me want to visit savannah <laughs> more than some certain other cities yeah, that, that wedding in charleston still was probably the only time it's more than any other time in my life i've truly felt like a a heretic among the faith among the uh, faithful that when they announced, would all baptized Christians come forward to take communion? And everyone in the room stood up, but like, you, me, and Joey. Yeah. 
and and one of our other friends just like looking back at us and shaking his head and just being like you heathens and walking away it was great well well the, the lightning we was of... not going to strike you down <laughs> what do we think of mrs hardy's um, story and focus on um, mr aiken the uh, the poet laureate poet prize winner pulitzer prize winner that's that's the where that's the place that she ultimately takes him to is in, in the cemetery is the bench that serves as his uh, gravestone. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was interesting to me particularly. It's, it's just another interesting story that's just very much focused on death and tragedy in the past, and then finding the joy in life to overcome it. It seems to be a common theme in what she's trying to focus upon. It also seemed to be a convenient place to drink martinis. Yeah. Yeah. Bench in a graveyard. Perfect. Um, so actually, funny enough. So two two funny enough things. Uh, Midnight in the Garden of Evil was a runner-up, but didn't win the Pulitzer Prize in 1995. Um, it lost it to The Beak of the Finch, Story of Evolution in Our Time, which I've never heard of. Nope. Um, <laughs> and the doing things in a graveyard. Um, so the uh, graveyard that I believe has Edgar Allan Poe in it um, is actually very close walking distance to the lab that I worked in prior to going to graduate school. Um, and actually worked in before that during undergrad and, and previously. And one of the things that every so often when we went out to lunch to celebrate something as is very Maryland and sort of Baltimore specific, we would go and get crab cakes and then go and eat in uh, our lunch in this graveyard. That the And not, I don't believe on Alan, Edgar Allan Poe's grave, but graves in that graveyard. Um, and it was just a very nice green area, um, and impressively quiet since it was walled off from all the traffic. And so this story and experience of, you know, relaxing and chatting in a graveyard is not foreign to me. I actually really like, I really like graveyards. Um, I, I don't know. I find them to be like very calming and peaceful, um, and relaxing and, um, yeah, I don't know. I like I like to go to old graveyards um, because I think they're really interesting. And actually, here in Hillsborough, we have a graveyard outside of one of the Presbyterian churches downtown that has the grave of a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Really? Mm-hmm. I don't remember who it is. I okay. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to furtively look it up while we were talking and it got there too fast um, for this to go smoothly. So I'm just going to admit defeat on the whole thing. Well, I will fully agree with you guys that I, I I find graveyards fascinating. It's lovely to walk through them. I love the history that's associated with it. And it's so, something that's, as you guys have said, is very much steeped in Southern culture. I remember when I was younger, my mom knew that um, my my dad's family, had, had they when they'd first come from uh, Scotland, they'd come to eastern North Carolina and that they'd had a plot somewhere south of uh, the Triangle area. And so she tr- researched where old graveyards were. And started driving through the, uh, driving through the Piedmont area trying to find it until she flagged down a highway tr- patrolman and just asked on a whim whether he knew where it was. Said, "Oh yeah, the old graveyard." And gave her directions, and just roaming through the south and just a preserved. I don't know if it was a field somebody owned or not, but just in a field in the middle of nowhere, there was an old family graveyard of our family going back to the 1700s. Okay. But that. That's just the kind of thing you find in the South, where just old graveyards aren't touched, they aren't built over, they're just part of the uh, the background, part of the setting. Okay, so, so you tell the story, and, and I know we're getting further and further away from our character study, but 
so somebody some random person bought some property with your family's graveyard in it are you you're not related to these people no most most of the family that line of the family from what we know had moved off to other states and i guess they'd sold off the property and left left it behind the graveyard remained as a memory interesting would you bj buy a property with other people's graves on it uh knowingly buy a property with other people's graves on it well, I think the, the the easy answer is no because I do don't really want property that needs tending. Um, and so so if there are graves on it, that means that there's a lot of property that I have to deal with, and that's not kind of my cup of tea. Uh, the, you mean your quarter acre gra- lot is not going to have graves oh, on it? Wow, quarter acre. Um, that's a lot of uh, land to deal with. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but but amazingly, right, the other side. Got a baseline. Yeah, so amusingly, the other side of it is uh, my girlfriend really wants to have a reasonable amount of land. So so if that's something that happens in my future, sure, like, you know, the, sure, graveyards, whatever, like, it, you know, does, does, doesn't mind me one way or the other. Um, you know, Spencer, if you have any dimes that you need to bury, if I have uh, some graves, you know, let's do it. Uh, it's fun you guys mentioned that, too, because I, I thought there was a bit of a... Um... A, there's a something that Miss Hardy did that kind of reminds me of something Minerva did later. I mean, it's a, a classic custom of pouring out a, a drink on a grave, mm-hmm. but it does tie back later to what um, the voodoo practitioner Minerva does when she's trying to speak with the dead and speak particularly with Danny, of where she brings a bottle of alcohol to keep pouring upon the grave. So I find it interesting that uh, Miss Hardy does the same thing when they're standing upon Aiken's grave. Yeah, I, I think that the whole... Uh, tradition around graves and gravestones to be kind of interesting and that different cultures have very different customs. Um, I mean, I know that there are a lot of uh, Asian cultures that bring food and alcohol and, and things like that to graves. Um, and and Jews bring stones to put on headstones, which I don't really understand, but is apparently a thing. Um, and you know, I bring it up and say, well, I don't know anything, which isn't particularly helpful, but... Um, I saw it in Schindler's List. It does happen. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it when there are times of the year that, that you visit graveyards for various reasons, uh, graves of people you know, and you bring stones to put on their graves. And so I thought this was a very... It's a very interesting sort of... Uh, and maybe very personal... Uh, connection that this chapter gives to Savannah and they they have this in some ways intimate conne- connection with with the dead in Savannah mm-hmm. well, as they say the party never actually dies and speaking of ongoing parties um, if we don't have anything else perfect to say transition about perfect party, transition <laughs> Please, lead us on to our ongoing partner. So the next character um, that we encounter in a chapter called The Sentimental Gentleman, um, we get introduced to uh, sort of his lifestyle before we get introduced to him. So our narrator has taken out rooms um, somewhere in the city, and he finds that there there is at all kinds of odd hours in the day and night um, just music blaring seemingly at him from a, pro- a property adjoining him, right? Oh, yeah. When he looks out his window, there's just a constant stream of people coming and going. Unlocked door, just coming in, going out, the music going on at all times and all hours. Was this Which, the 
the chapter that had the old lady breaking the window? It did have that too, yes. Yes. That, that was a little bit of flavor that I particularly enjoyed. And that was the kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was the catalyst to get our narrator to go over and figure out what the hell was actually happening at this house, right? I think it was Mandy showing up at his door that really drew him out to start. Having a voluptuous blonde winner of Miss BBW invite him to come over with a jug of ice got him through the door, where the, whereas the lady with the hammer just previously rendered him intrigued. What was that, Spencer? Miss what? Miss BBW, wasn't she? Which is what? I don't. Yeah, I don't remember that. It's big, beautiful woman. I I distinctly remember reading that that she won that competition. I, you distinctly remember a lot. Of, I do not remember that. Um, so I yeah, will say I, that I'm. I uh, got the quote here. She also said she had been crowned Miss BBW in Las Vegas a year before. Miss BBW. That stands for Miss Miss Big Beautiful Woman. Interesting. Um, so this this particular. Uh, character was played by Allison Eastwood um I believe the daughter of uh Clint um and while she may hold some other titles and be a very beautiful woman I don't think those um that particular acronym is is particularly appropriate um and then interestingly enough a actor that I've never heard of Paul Hip plays uh joe odom which i find really funny because as we mentioned last episode uh joe odom talks about playing himself in the movie that is going to be made of the book that john barrett writes which i thought was a kind of funny interaction where oh yeah multiple characters and joe odom being the most talkative of all of them um that are just like well who's gonna play you know my character in your in the movie of your book I love that it's a point that keeps getting brought back to and see how it adjusts over time. Like, once he starts dealing with, you know, people that aren't as in fitting with the mainstream Savannah culture or just, you know, straight up focused around the murder trial, Joe just starts, like, oh, Joe, do you have any problem with me doing this? It's like, no, now, based on all the people you're hanging out with, now I get to be the hero of the story. So this this is a chapter based around Joe Ogham. Let's mm-hmm. at least lay that out, right? And so the first yes. thing that we know about about Joe, apart from the fact that there's music blaring out of his house um, day and night and that people are traipsing in and out of the house day and night as well, um, is that th- this character Mandy comes over uh, to get ice because Joe's electricity has been cut off again. <laughs> Which I think is a pretty Which... apt summary of Joe Odom. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great summary other than he um, he's sort of the guy that everybody knows and hangs out with and, and has fun with. Um, and so, you know, a little bit more than just like the people are coming in and out. Uh, he's the one that always has something fun going on. Mm-hmm. And always has some sort of scheme that he's perpetuating. Yes. Too. Oh, yeah. He's the quintessential irrepressible scoundrel, mm-hmm. but he's just so damn likable that even when he's caught with his hand in the cookie jar, everyone's default response is to not respond negatively to it. Like I think they set up early on, it's either in this chapter or the next one where we see him that, you know, he recently was involved in a pretty substantial, well, not, I, don't, I don't think the author makes clear whether it's necessarily an intentional fraud, but he was <laughs> helping put... He was helping put together a housing development. It sold various properties to people and then immediately defaulted on the construction loan and resulted in all those people having their houses leaned and requiring them to get the liens cleared, which 
was no small amount of hassle. All these people that invested a lot of money into this project, but basically none of them sue him because they, he's just too damn likable to sue. The reason I said that I don't know if it was intentional fraud is he also takes pains to say that Joe Odom also lost his shirt in the process and rapidly becomes a renter in his own home. And it's interesting because it's it's sometimes difficult to suss out in each of these stories, like whether whether Joe Odom is incompetent or malicious or like just doesn't really care. I I really default towards the latter, and I think the story that Mandy tells about the robbery of their home kind of mm-hmm. just emphasizes that, of where she tells a story about where they're up in bed and someone's plainly breaking in downstairs. And so she yells at Joe, you know, get up, do something about it. And he just yells out a random name, confirms it's not that person, and goes back to sleep. With the only conclusion in the morning being, well, they just stole liquor and glasses. It sounds more like a party I wasn't invited to. So, yeah, he is... He strikes me as just a guy that just does not care. He's a wastrel who just wants to get by having fun in life each day to day, and, you know, everything else will fall in line eventually. Yeah, I'd love to be able to live my life that way, Um, (laughs) a little bit more carefree. Um, I just, I don't know, just sort of everything about his character is very opposite to the way I live my life. And, you know, just not planning, not have any, you know, idea of what you're doing next and just sort of being like, yeah, whatever, it's fine, it'll work out, like, I'll open a business and, and you know, oh, I need to pay some debts, uh, how much money's in the register? Like, I'll, I'll be back. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it, it makes me, like, actively anxious even reading about it, um, let alone, like, being too near someone who is living this way let alone even more taking on some of these qualities myself. (laughs) Would it be fair to suggest that what he says about Joe suggests that Joe wasn't always this way, that Joe used to be a relatively high-flying attorney, and then he's just kind of semi-retired since. So I don't interpret it that way. How do you interpret it? I guess I I view him as... So honest to God, like I, I'm not a hundred percent sure like what his legal credentials are. <laughs> I, uh, I read it as super unclear as well. Um, various yeah. people uh, refer to him as more or less of an attorney or real estate developer or slot in whatever other kind of professional thing as we go throughout. Yeah, and well, you, you know, we sort of know the president of the Georgia Bar at this time, so mm-hmm. you know, I I just sort of feel like you know he could have gotten in well with um, I think it's Sonny Siler, um, whoever owns Uga at the moment, um, and just been like, hey, you know, I know a bunch of uh, laws, and and I'm totally fine to practice law. Like, I'll I'll host a couple of parties, and are we cool? Like, I can practice law, right? Um, <laughs> And that's essentially his, you know, legal uh, weight. Uh, yes, I mean, my, my, the reason I said it was because, I mean, it, it's hard with Joe to know whether he's telling the truth. I generally assume with Joe Odom that he's not lying just because he doesn't really feel the need to. That, you know, he can get you to do whatever he wants without lying to you. But his original description of himself is that I'm a tax lawyer, said Joe, and a real estate broker and a piano player. I used to be a partner in a law firm, but a couple years ago I quit and moved my office into this house so that I could mix business and pleasure in whatever proportion I wanted. And that's when my third wife le- left me. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could see, I mean, sure, he could have, you know, done law school and, and passed the bar and sort of all those things. Um, 
or been a, more along the lines of uh, the president of the bar and taken a year after his bachelor's, gone to law school and uh, gone from there. So like, and that's a, that's not part of this book. That's part of Wikipedia. Um, mm-hmm. And so last week. Yeah. Um, uh, f- from what we said our episode last week. So I guess the, yeah, I mean, I totally can see him having a law of practice, you know, dealing with taxes and stuff like that. And he's like, you know, he works with all the little old ladies and, and, you know, submits their taxes and certifies them. And then he's a partner with, you know, some other lawyer and probably a couple of accountants that, you know, frowned on his practices of, uh, you know, going out with his clients on wed daughters and whatever else for, you know, changes in the, their fee schedule. And then it and just being like, all right. skimming a little off the top in the process. Of course, bit. of course. Um, yeah, but he'll pay it back. I mean, you know, he yeah, just needs to, for to fund his nightclub. Of course. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the his being a uh, partner in a law firm I feel like that phrase carries weight that he doesn't seem to have behind him. At least not anymore. Yeah, and I guess the other concept that I have of him is that he's young enough that this isn't like he had a fall from grace and he's, uh, you know, well into his 60s or 70s. I imagine him more, you know, maybe late 30s. I was kind of picturing him older. Uh, did you think he was older or younger than our narrator? Um, I would say maybe a little bit older, but not much. Yeah, I would have said okay. essentially contemporaries. Like, I did not read him as very old at all. I would say, along with UBJ, sort of maybe late 30s. Um, I think he, well, I mean, he seems like a person who will always present as perpetually youthful. Um, <laughs> Nature of his character there. But even, even with that knowledge, he presented as younger to me. Well, it, it, as you said, the nature of him is to just be is is to be so carefree. You can't imagine him as being anything other than young. That there's just so much revelry associated with his character and everything that he does, and just so, so little care for everything else that seemingly more adult people would uh, dwell about. That his response to being of you know, he loses his home, finds okay, now I'm just renting it, and now I don't have to worry about paying taxes or worrying about the electricity. His response to that house burning down. Oh, well, I'll just move into a neighbor. I'll just rent a new house in a neighboring property. Response to being evicted from that? Okay, I'll essentially just squat in a house where I know the where the prop, the uh, real estate agent's going to be overseas for a set period. And I'll keep the house clear during that period by telling him that I want to buy it. Yeah, and I guess sort of that combined with, you know, I haven't really quite finished the paperwork to have my girlfriend divorced from her husband and in that same time i'm gonna sleep with and or date a handful of other people i guess Uh it just didn't doesn't ring true for like the you know 50s or 60s kind of guy for me but that's also just i guess a projection of like i just don't see that I guess I sort of imagine him as a little bit younger, a little bit more of a player rather than, you know, an older uh, silvered fox, shall we say. My only response to that would be is that if he's indeed in his 30s now, I can't picture him stopping doing what he's currently doing if he eventually makes it into his 50s. I just think this is just the way of life he's set for himself and it's not going to stop until he dies. Fair enough. 
what else can we say about Joe and how he goes about it, how he goes about his day? We've talked about his uh, nonstop party that he has. You left out one of his partners, by the way, in his operation. I think his most successful partner is the hairdresser that's just constantly working with the old ladies coming through his home. Well, I, I feel like there are two major things that we need to talk about. There's the the hairdresser, but there's the uh, nightclub that does come yeah. up a, quite a bit later in the book. Um, but if we're introducing characters mm-hmm. and you know going through them, um, there's a somewhat other ancillary character, the Lady of a Thousand Songs, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and he essentially opens a nightclub. Um, and I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's basically him and this woman uh, open a nightclub and and serve drinks and play live music. And he sort of plays live music when there's no other better option, I guess. (laughs) Essentially when she needs a break. Um, Yeah. And and so uh, this is sort of another one of his schemes that... He's like, oh, well, I know a great way to make money. A great way to make money is to open a club and, you know, we'll have a bar and and we'll, you know, we'll charge people a cover and whatever else. And And I get to live my lifestyle in my place of work, um, which always really, really works out. And for the record, the name of the nightclub is Sweet Georgia Browns. And the Lady of a Thousand Songs, I believe is her uh, title is is, uh, uh, Georgia Brown. Is it? No. Her name is Emma. Oh, her yeah. name is Emma. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to confirm. I think Sweet, I think Sweet George Brown's might have been this. I mean, he, he creates a few clubs over time. So he's got one with Emma, but that inevitably starts to go south from a mess of factors, including one, hiring a professional uh, bank robber to serve as the bartender, which apparently Emma knew about, but Joe didn't, which I, I love that little just exchange of them inviting over the professional um, waitress who just confirms, <laughs> yeah, he's a professional bank robber. Well, how do you know? Because I'm his getaway driver. Oh, Okay. Sorry, it's 6,000 song, and it's Emma Kelly. Emma Kelly. But inevitably, Joe's past and all the creditors that are just looking for some property of his to try to make good on whatever he's um, lost them over the years grab that one. And so I think he then makes another club with uh, Mandy, doesn't it, where she's serving as the main singer? I don't, uh, do, do I have that right? I don't remember Mandy being the singer. I thought Mandy was in on Sweet Georgia Browns. Well, I remember he yeah. makes another club because Mandy eventually screws him over with respect to it when he starts forging her name on checks. That was at the very end, though. Yeah. I don't think we get much about whatever the new club is, because it comes out that he's forging checks at the at the end of the book, is my recollection. Yeah, I've got it here. Uh, Sweet Georgia Browns, where Mandy would serve as part owner of the bar and featured vocalist. Uh, yeah, and so I, I think it was he was, or she was writing checks, and, and he's like, oh, well that's not my signature that must have been mandy's and so like i'll totally pay you it just didn't realize these checks were going out and um let me talk to you for five minutes um and we'll sort this out and um we'll we'll take care of this while he's in court and i think this is one of the times that john that the uh author was in court waiting for you know the trial of jim williams to continue where uh there were other court cases that were sort of uh, integral to to his uh, telling of the story. So Joe Odom was also in court. And I guess, Spencer, it, how would you feel as a judge if somebody on your docket sort of like halfway through is like, all right, hold up a minute. Sidebar, we're going to work this out. 
Just, just like give us like fifteen twenty minutes. It happens all the time, truly all the time. <laughs> uh, no, I mean during almost every other hearing, you'll see you'll have, you'll have people say, "Your Honor, can we have a small recess. I think we can resolve this." It very much is a standard way of doing it. Now, don't see it as much the way he ended up doing it. Of where, don't worry, I'll help redraft the uh, complaint that he filed so that he can then proceed against me. Never seen that before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it just, it very much is just in fitting with Joe's just persona of where he's just so eminently likable, so eminently carefree that that kind of act just works into the image he has that he projects of just a person that you could never imagine wanting to, wanting to harm or in any way seek revenge against. I do have the, um, I don't know that it actually matters now, but I do have the timeline of the nightclubs. Um, if it's helpful. So Sweet Georgia Browns was actually the second one that he opened with Mandy. Uh, The first one with Emma as the kind of main singer was suitably called Emma's. Okay. That works. Yeah. So so I wasn't misremembering the whole, uh, it was just the wrong name. Cool. Yeah. Um, In terms of uh, Joe Odom's role for the narrator, I really feel like he serves as kind of the central secondary character of the story of where so many of the chapters that are talking about other people or talking about the main plot always come back to Joe and the narrator's experiences with Joe. And Joe seems to play a pretty important role in terms of helping open him up to other to other parts of the community. Like he's he's one of the ones that gives him like the first three bits of advice about what you do, where you don't go, whatever else. He's the one that helps get him the car. So I I think. Jonah really is very essential in terms of the narrator's ultimate exploration of um, the city of Savannah and getting to know these other characters. And also completely ignoring a lot of his recommendations. <laughs> Almost immediately, which yeah. Joe yes. just has a good laugh at. Um, and I think that's the next chapter or two? Yeah, um, Joe, Joe Odom takes over a couple of chapters here. I think the one thing, you know, we talked about... Um, a little bit about the hairdresser and a little bit about um, the nightclubs. But I think the thing that we are missing in Joe Odom's kind of arc in this story is the extent to which he makes whatever living he does um, by bringing in tour buses full of full of tourists to whatever quote-unquote historic house he happens to be living in at the time. Um, and so we frequently will have just a few rooms kind of sort of done. Um, although we mentioned last episode, the extent to which like various historical and preservationist committees come up um, in the running of Savannah, at least in the circles um, in which we're enmeshed in this book. And um, they take great umbrage at the idea that he is giving <laughs> historical tours of anything. Um but he has a couple of rooms that are like presentable anyway. And then he, he and his, whoever happens to be staying in the house with him will throw together some sort of lunch that they offer these tour buses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which is how, how he makes a fair amount of his kind of petty cash that he takes around with him. Um, but also yeah. becomes one of the kind of main sticking points between him and the, ta- and the town. Well, well and the town and, and Mandy. The town. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, which was also kind of funny because, like, I think it was in either these chapters or, or maybe some later ones where Mandy was basically saying, and sometimes I would give the uh, tour and sometimes Joe would just be having uh, an entertaining time in one of the bedrooms while the tour was going on. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we'd have to redirect um, people away from. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I loved it from a legal perspective, too, of where he's constantly on the edge of being shut down and is constantly having to use... He's legitimately clever and capable and probably could be very successful if you wanted to actually invest in anything to keep above water. Like, uh, when the various historical societies want to investigate him first because they assume that he's not act- he doesn't actually have antiques, he's not actually putting on a proper historical tour, the first lady they send returns... With a fresh makeup, with with fresh makeup and a new hairdo, just gushing about how wonderful he is. <laughs> yeah, you when, certainly get the sense that if he ever decided to sort of go straight, um, if he could actually invest himself in it, he would be very successful. Even from a legal perspective, when you you know they originally get it out law that he can't do private tours of his house, he then basically just rezones his home as a museum, and so that so that it works under current under current rules to the point that they'd have to ban all of themselves to ban him. That's a legitimately clever solution to that problem. And he, throughout the story, I mean, how many times do you guys think he moves or he's forced to move or has has a business shut down? It's like five, six? Yeah, we lose track. We see at least five. um, Essentially every chapter that he's in. Yeah. (laughs) The end of the chapter is him leaving wherever he was. The only time we actually see him in any way concerned is when... Um, he finally has done Mandy wrong enough that she seeks a certain degree of uh, recompense of compensation and revenge against him. I think it's the only time we see him anything other than a flappable. But otherwise, he's whatever occurs, whatever fires, threats, lawsuits, police doesn't matter. He always finds a way to work his way out of the situation. It's just it's almost it's hard not to almost just admire his pluck with the course he goes about his life, even if it is just utterly foreign to me. I was going to say, like, the the major concern that he has is the author's relationship with Chablis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. Even then, he just kind of laughs it off. Yeah, a little bit, but it's just like, are you still, like, hanging around with her? Um, he has, but yeah. yeah, he has a weird, for someone who is squatting in a variety of houses, he has a weird sort of snobbery. About like what what is who who are the correct people to be hanging out with and where are the correct places to be in Savannah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I assume that a lot of it is a place and a time. Yeah, and and so it is of the eighties and of the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was looking at the quote that uh, Joe Adams said when he talked about you know our narrator hanging out with uh, Luther Driggers and uh, Chablis. And I was about to read it, and then I looked back at the language, and I'm not reading this out loud in terms of his description of, the, of these characters. He does You'll not, read not it to polite. your lover, but not to uh, our audience. Okay. <laughs> no, I've not, I've not gotten to this chapter yet. Uh, we'll address that when it comes. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, how early is Luther Driggers introduced? He's the next Very. chapter. Oh, perfect. Yes. Um, I... Have I don't know why I like Luther Driggers as much as I do. <laughs> I like him a lot. He's great. Um, he is one of the more bizarre characters. Yeah, but and I also the, like yeah. him as like a weird font of knowledge and like does completely sort of off the wall things. And it's just like, yeah, but this is sort of what entertains me. Yeah. And so we get if are we ready to like actually move on to Luther? Obviously, so we inevitably will have to get back to Joe as we go, just because he keeps jumping back up in every other character's plot line as the story goes. But yeah, I'm I'm ready to go into Luther. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say I think you know he sort of comes up a little bit. We mentioned him 
maybe briefly, but he comes up a little bit with Danny and sort of the whole trial there. Yeah. And I feel like mm-hmm. we should talk about that a little bit, maybe yeah. later. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in the next chapter um, called The Inventor, we get introduced to Luther Driggers, and this narrator and this author is someone who likes to do the kind of delayed introduction. Um, so there is some sort of, in each of these character sketches, there is some sort of like slice of life something um, around the character that we then kind of get hit with the character later. So at this point, um, we get introduced to this drugstore diner called Clary's um, and this almost phantom figure of a man who comes in every morning and orders the same breakfast. And our narrator starts to notice that the other patrons and the waitstaff are very concerned about what this man does with his breakfast. The city hangs on this. It is. This is the daily news that matters. All the news yeah. that is fit to eat or something. I don't know. Um, I could have worked so, about that more before I said it. But. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this is plays very true to life for me. Um, there, every so pretty much whenever I go visit my mom, I come in, you know, at different hours of the day. But usually she'll take the day off, and we'll go out to breakfast or lunch or whatever, depending if I'm going in or going out. And it'll usually be sort of somewhere between the airport and where she lives. And I just remember one of the times, um, I think I'd come in at some obnoxious hour of the morning because I'd taken the red eye from California and we stopped in at some diner and it was some diner sort of in the middle of nowhere of a suburb of Baltimore and reasonably good food. And and we had a pleasant meal, but there were like seven, seven or eight guys that were sitting with newspapers and food in front of them and you know chatting with each other pretty much all of them at separate tables and you could easily imagine that this was what they did every single day and so this drugstore diner where the patrons are always the same every single day and this guy comes in and some days you know he's feeling better than others and and Pretty much everybody in the diner has talked about him and then talked to him. And so they know what's going on really rings true for me. And so it's something that like I accept as a this this very much probably happened. And so, yeah, I mean, I I've had diners in my hometown that do that. I mean, hell, there were the old men at the Hardee's every morning that did the same thing, too. Right. <laughs> um, so, but in this particular case, there are like two options of what's going to happen here. Um, and this is, as you said, Spencer, kind of what the town hangs on. What are those two options? Uh, well, option one, that he, what do you mean, that he eats the meal or that he doesn't eat the meal? Yes. <laughs> They're very simple <laughs> options, I will say. Um, uh, which the city has become convinced, well, by way of background, the city is convinced that Luther Driggers is essentially holding the equivalent of an atom bomb in his back pocket. That being that he's an insectologist that works on insecticide, they are, for some reason, convinced that he has a poison of potency and uh, ability to spread that could, could fully contaminate the entire water, water supply of the city of Savannah and kill everyone. And they believe that 
The moments when he's not eating his breakfast are the moments that he's reaching a certain struggling mental state where he might just go and use that poison. And so the entire town needs to be aware of this for their own protection. So I believe that he's an inventor that invented, like, the flea collar, essentially. He did. Got nothing Um, for it. Yeah, and got nothing for it. And so this sort of puts the background of his chemical prowess, shall we say. It also kind of frames a lot of the tragedy that's going into him as a character. I mean, they talked about, you know, the invented the flea collar, but because he was a government employee and too honest to leak it before one of his coworkers did, he got nothing for it. Talks about um, he had a first marriage of where it doesn't really say how, it just says the marriage ended after a year and that he's essentially lived alone other than his relationship with, um, what is her name, Serena Dawes that we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, that was her name. And, and I likened her to, um, what's her name, Guards Guards. You did, yes. Um, And I guess I sort of wonder if the book itself is a little bit of a, you know, tragedy of characters. Okay. Because I I feel like a lot of these characters go through at least a very tough time, if not a tragedy in either the past or current to the book. And also Savannah herself is sort of going through a, you know, maybe revitalization period, but a destruction from her for- former glory. Well, very much so. I Maybe it could, it could just be very much in keeping with what uh, Miss Hardy talked about with that story of where, you know, the house is literally burning down, go outside, finish your drink, shatter the glass, and make a new one. Where a lot of these characters go through a certain amount of tragedy, but it's also about them, you know, keeping on. I, th- I think another thing that Luther Triggers kind of represents as well is just, um, I think this is something that the narrator kind of set out when he was describing the, the, the three stories that he had that gave him his entire perspective on Savannah and how you know, going to talk to the historian, finding out that most of the stories have no basis in fact. Where most of these stories seem to be framed about, he meets somebody, he has a preconception about who that person is, or there's a preconception that's been given to him about that person, and then he learns more and expands his perspective and maybe even finds out that original views weren't necessarily accurate. Like with Luther Driggers, the key thing here is that uh, everyone's like, oh, the reason he's not eating whatever else is because he's, you know, going, he's going insane, he's going nuts, he's, the stress is building up in him. Th- this moment decides everything. When he speaks with Luther Driggers and finally just asks him about it, Luther Driggers is kind of embarrassed and says, no, I just really don't make enough stomach acid, so it's really not pleasant to eat some days. So I just kind of decide how I'm feeling that day, and some days I eat and some days I don't. It's a more mundane explanation. Now, the ultimate conspiracy theory about him having poison that could destroy the world is actually true as it turns out or at least according to luther drinkers which eh. eh question the source um all of these characters have some sort of tragedy that they have gone through or at least represent themselves as having gone through some sort of tragedy we don't necessarily get specific stories for all of them um mm-hmm. but that kind of lines up like that sort of self-presentation also lines up with a kind of self-presentation of quote-unquote the South as well as that kind of like aggrieved tragedy figure. Um, so I think some of that gets kind of transferred onto these characters just by way of setting and by way of um, all of these other stories that are swirling around, whether or not we necessarily have evidence that each of these individual characters has gone through some sort of tragic experience. Sarah, that's a good thing to point out about the lost cause mindset and its effect on uh, Southern sensibilities. Uh, yeah, that's a good. It is very much at play throughout this book. Yeah, and yeah. I think the the various stories that we get about Luther Driggers are sort of the sad and maybe hopeful 
parts and and sort of Mm -hmm. about even amounts um and the the stories that we get about him further are um basically he and and serena dawes have this sort of on again off again romance that just sort of doesn't really pan out and it's um she's sort of almost uh i don't know i imagine what paris hilton's going to be in like 30 years (laughs) that's Um, the first i've not thought about in a long time (laughs) Yeah, I was sort of trying to figure somebody who essentially was just known for their looks and their place in society and nothing else. For, um, for being a socialite. Yeah. Um, and this is essentially his, and we don't really know how he got sort of put in the orbit of uh, Serena Dawes, but he's sort of in the romantic orbit of Serena Dawes, and that doesn't really work out. And he also has sort of these grand, you know, this other grand scientific scheme where he's going to make glow-in-the-dark goldfish, which I just think is, like, the funniest thing. And he he essentially just poisons them. Um, And and that's the real, like, that is where we are with his character when we're introduced to him, like, more or less, right? Like, that is the project that he is working on for his vignette. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I just, I, I really like is he's also just a fount of random knowledge. And I think that's what draws me the most to his character. Because the author, for whatever reason, has to toilet. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you can use a brick to clean your toilet. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, it won't scrape the porcelain the way the steel wool will. Exactly. And then, you know... 20 chapters later or whatever when he comes back in he's like well you essentially could have used anything like a brick didn't really matter it's just because like it's a little bit softer than the porcelain and that's really all that matters and like the fact that he remembers this piece of advice that he gave like everything about it just i feel like typifies his character and why i like his character so much I like that he's also saying this while a collection of tiny flies connected to strings are just flying around him while they're still connected to his vest. That he's just a person that seems to love to be constantly fiddling and finicking with things. And so his, I just enjoy the visual of him just walking around with just little, little flies constantly buffeted around in little circles, just still attached to him as he goes. Um, how uh, remind remind me, BJ? Uh, how exactly does his um, particular experiments with getting glow in the dark goldfish end up working out? Uh, essentially, not well. I don't I don't remember exactly what he tries to use to do this. Um, but he, as I remember, he basically tries to infu- infuse fish food with a chemical that'll make them fluoresce. Feed a bunch of fish in a bar, and it being super cool. Um, there are a bunch of problems with this, and I think the reason that I don't remember it as much was scientifically, I was just like, what the, why you're supposed to be super smart. Like this doesn't really make sense. Like you should have known what was going to happen. And that, that, that part frustrated me in, in a way that is kind of unreasonable for a story in book like this. Um, and, and go ahead. I said he could be smart in some ways and ignorant in others. And, you know, as it comes to making glow-in-the-dark goldfish, this appears to be a bit of a gap in his knowledge. Admittedly, it yeah. does kind of work. Yeah, it's it, just in in his nervousness and delays caused by Serena. He, doesn't that basically just say that he overfed the fish, and so it, all the glow-in-the-dark just kind of got caught in their guts? Well, he, he put it in their food, so it was going right. to get caught in their guts anyway. Um, and it was just, I think, the timing that by the time he actually got it 
to the bar instead of it more being everywhere as it was early on it was essentially only in their like fish intestine and so it's sort of this grotesque like bright you know their poop is going through their intestines like you should check this out in a bar which I, I can hear, Sarah, your revulsion, but also I could also see that being really entertaining in a bar. I would go to that bar. I would be down to go to that bar. That'd be fast. That, that, that'd be great to watch drunk happen. Um, and and I, I can just imagine it being in a bar, you know, having a pool. It's like, all right, when when is the fluorescent poop going to come out and like a whole thing? <laughs> but in this it was like a major failure of this character and then he sort of considers poisoning the whole town again which i just there are parts that ring very true for this story and this character and the whole Mm -hmm. poisoning thing just seems a little bit off to me in Mm -hmm. a way that the character isn't off in a lot of the other interaction do you you're of the view that he doesn't actually have the poison. This is just, you know, I, this is just idle emotional puffery on his part. Um, I find it interesting when he's even describing the scenario of, you know, everyone uh, using the poison. The first thing he starts with is, you know, I couldn't actually do it. You know, the town's getting all of its water from an aquifer. I couldn't actually get all the poison in there. It wouldn't be practical. And then just revealing the font of knowledge is, he just continues with, oh, and, you know, the town's going to have to switch from an aquifer here in a few years because of salt water leaching. And I'll have to move on to the river, which is already so damn toxic anyway, it wouldn't even matter if I had poison to it. So. Yeah. It, 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 it's kind of like a, a hook on his, like, on him being a character. And it just, it just doesn't feel right. Because, like, why, why do you need a hook on a character that's, making fluorescent goldfish and fails because they're pooping out their fluorescence like that just doesn't it doesn't feel like you need that extra step and that extra step just doesn't seem to play right with the rest of the story but i could also see him being a lot weirder than presented Mm -hmm. and so the hook is real and is there and the author also trying to normalize him a bit more rather than like all of the other super weird things that this dude is doing yeah, I mean, I think that it it read to me like it could certainly go either way, um, but it read to me kind of like Luther Driggers was in some ways in on the joke um, mm. and knew that part of his reputation was that he had this sort of like apocalyptic capability, right? And he kind of liked having that reputation, partially mm-hmm. because so much of his kind of like inventor persona doesn't pan out the way that he would that he would really like it to you know he doesn't get the he doesn't get the patent on um the flea collar his goldfish are like somewhat somewhat gross um mm-hmm. and but but he has this he has this reputation around town it read to me like he was playing into that reputation yeah i, th- I think that's very possible that it could be a playing the reputation or just even like you know a secret life of walter mitty kind of escape from the rest of his life mm-hmm. that he just kind of you know goes into the imaginings that the rest of the world is built around him and just finds a degree of peace and happiness in that, as uh, morbid as it ultimately is. Uh, remind, I'm trying to remember what ultimately happens to this character. Doesn't doesn't his life of tragedy just keep kind of getting worse as this story unfolds? I mean, he breaks up with Serena, and she just kind of dies of her own terms. And then he gets married, and she gets, like, cancer and dies in, like, six months, too, right? I think Do so. I, have that right? I think th- I mean that yeah, sounds right. That, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, I I also feel like 
you say that it's a bad thing that he didn't end up with Serena. But... No, no, I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> she is emotionally, psychologically abusive in all kinds of ways. The bre- him being smitten with her for years uh, was not good for him, I'm sure. Yeah, she just seems like a force of something that just is more... Self-absorption? Yeah, self-absorption, controlling, just sort of all of the things that probably aren't quite the best for uh, this sort of uh, nerdy uh, insular type. I mean, all all Serena... Should we move on to Serena as a character? She kind of... She really only is presented within his chapters. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I get much of, I mean, I don't know I that I get much in, of a sense of her away yeah, from Luther. I think there was like one or there was a little bit more sort of describing her history, her previous marriage. And I believe uh, she was invited to some party and that was essentially separate from him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that she sort of showed up. Um, but I, I feel like as a character, she's kind of a character caricature but i don't think that that is an inappropriate description mm-hmm. um whereas like yeah. yes sure it's a caricature and she's sort of always wearing uh basically lingerie with feather boa kind of stuff but i i definitely do feel like this is sort of the uh i don't know instagram star in 30 years where they they're just sort of posting pictures of themselves that no one wants to see and no one really wants to be around but they're still sort of famous because they're famous mm-hmm. and and i guess that's sort of what i get from her as a character and i don't find her character to be interesting um i the i think the background essentially was um she was reasonably attractive married some dude thought her mother-in-law was the worst made him do like buy some property and a bunch of things and then when they divorced she basically stuck it to her mother-in-law and that was kind of like her impressive story of herself and what she was proud of yeah i mean if we'd like to skip her i'm fine with doing that i mean she mostly serves as a disruptive influence on various other characters around her and doesn't seem as well i I don't find her as interesting as a lot of some of the other characters we could explore I think we have discussed her as much as she merits. <laughs> so, uh, if we want to do somebody brief, and I think we've already kind of gone over their chapter. I think he's like back in chapter two. I do not remember his name, but what is the char- the, ca- the character who is constantly walking the dog? I love the character who's oh. constantly walking the dog, and I don't remember his name either. It's, it's like in chapter two. It's really early yeah. on. Um, it's very early on, and I I like the story. Yeah, he but, himself is not really a character. Yeah, he he's not a character. I feel like it's a story of the South. And yes. I also feel like it's a weird uh, white savior, noblesse oblige thing as well. That's fair. Um, and so, like, I think it's sort of a fun, heartwarming story, but has, like, a another side to it that is a little... Hmm, yeah. Yeah, no, there's some weird racial overtones to that story. I mean, he, and, you know, here we are, and we can't remember his name. Um, He is the first black character that we are introduced to, essentially, right? William, um, William Simon Glover. I could not have told you that 
in 5,000 years of trying to come up with it. Um, and he himself does not really get any sort of a character. He has this story kind of around him, um, but he is, it's, it's weird because he is like, this story is just a little taste of some of the kind of weirdness and cringiness that impedes on some of the kind of racial dynamics um, of this story that I don't think are just racial dynamics in the stories, like inherent to the stories themselves. I think that they are also in ways that they are told in some cases. Yeah. And so as I remember, he worked for some family for quite a number of years. Mm -hmm. I want to say as the chauffeur, something like that. And uh, one of his duties, I believe, was to walk the dog of the family. And he worked for them for quite a number of years. The dog died at the and the family died first. And it was part of like the will that yeah. you just keep okay. caring for the dog. Look, I, I didn't remember which was which. Okay, so so the, the the will was you know that he'll be paid basically a living wage to continue walking the dog after the family died for as long as mm-hmm. the dog is alive. Right, and so he continues doing it, and the dog dies. And it ends up in front of a a judge um, because the estate's still paying him. And he's like, hey, like the dog died, like, and the estate's still paying me. Like, I, this, this shouldn't be happening. And the, the judge is like, what, what, what are you talking about? I see the dog right behind you. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, well, oh, yes, I, I guess I didn't see that the, the dead dog is is behind me yes you know of course like i'll i'll keep walking him as as the uh the will states and and keep maintaining the salary that they decided to pay me um and so he just wanders around savannah doing this on a semi-regular basis and apparently everybody that's uh anybody to be known knows about this arrangement and greets him and asks about the dog patrick i believe so I hope you had to look that up. <laughs> yes, I, won't, I can't claim otherwise. I'm, I'm br- browsing through that chapter right now as we're talking. Yeah, so, so it's, it's an interesting story. It is um, a story, as you say, BJ, that I think is kind of of the South, um, but not necessarily a character. I mean, there, there's no depth have... in necessarily depth in his character, as far as I yeah. remember. I think the the depth that we get is Savannah, mm-hmm. not any of the characters involved um, and sort of, you know, what the space is at the time. And I think it, you know, it, it sort of lends a little bit more of the flavor of the town, but is also very socioeconomic and racially charged. I think we're taking away a bit of agency from the character with that kind of um, broad stroke about it. I mean, the, the chapter goes goes into detail that, you know, he is a bit of a, a conniver in his own right. He is probably what a, a Joe Odom figure might be as he gets into his older years and starts to retire. But he talks about the various ways that he goes about, you know, his role in society, which is definitely unquestionably racially charged, but uses it to his advantage to make, to make, to go about his, to make his living. Just even the little things about how, you know, it's all psychology. When you're dealing with somebody, you walk up and say, oh, let me straighten your tie for you. And you, you know, pull their tie crooked and then re-straighten it. You always ask them about their wife. You see how that she's doing. You uh, offer to, you know, clean lint off his coat when he doesn't actually have lint there. It is racially charged in the sense that he is put into these servile kind of roles. 
but he's done that kind of necessary thing of where he's done ways to subvert it and make it his and you know in his own mild ways undercut the forces the, the forces that he's been that he's uh, profiting from so I, I i don't think it's fair to say that he's entirely a put-on character i think in some ways he's made this his own means of life his own means of operation and has made it his own in that regard but it yeah. doesn't ring to me as like him as an individual it gives us a certain degree of characterization, um, but he is, you know, compared to our various other secondary characters, he gets less than a full chapter to himself. So we don't get much time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's true. I just, I, I also, I, I don't know. I would push back. I feel like he, I feel like he does seem like a, we get a sense of what he does, not who he is. That's fair. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that the, you know. 15, 20 years ago, I probably would have, you know, brushed past it and been like, oh, yeah, you know, that's a fun story. But I I think that as I've grown more a, a part of uh, society, like, I, I think that some of the uh, descriptions and some of how he, he interacts with society are very, uh, are impinged with uh, what was going on at the time. And so I, I think that sort of needs to be acknowledged with, with uh, his character. Uh, but yeah, as, as we've said, he's a relatively minor character and I think give us a, a lot more flavor of Savannah than anything. Um, as said, this, the idea of the judge doing that kind of thing, of it wielding that kind of power and just setting that in stone forever is just such small time South. So it is, it, I can very much picture that happening in many Southern towns I've lived in. And it's interesting to see it at play here. Many uh, other towns you've lived in, so. Um... You know, I you know I, I worked directly with a judge for two years in a small southern town. So just use your imagination from there. All right. I thought it was in Blacksburg. No, Charlottesville. No? Okay, fair enough. But what what character would you like, would we like to move on to here then? If you guys were looking for bigger fish. Um, I, I feel like you know, we might not cover all of the characters uh, this episode because we're already fairly far in. But yeah. I feel like we need. To talk about Chablis. Yeah, I think. And I feel like she does <laughs> come let's up do shortly yeah. after this chapter, if not the next chapter. It is, it's certainly very close because she, I mean, she comes up relatively early in the book and then becomes a, a sort of constant presence um, throughout the rest of the book, uh, here and there at least. Do we want, maybe we can do for this episode, we can do Chablis and finish on Chablis for this episode? Yeah, that's fine, I think that, that's, a, that's a good way to uh, close out. Okay. Um, so I think that there are, there are two things that we need to do with Chablis. One is I feel like we need to do, uh, Chablis plot. Okay. Um, because mm-hmm. there's a good chunk of the book that's dedicated to story that she appears in. And I, I feel terrible about doing this, but, um, she has a couple of chapters and then she plays a fairly major role in the section of the the book that's basically, okay, well, we've talked about the white side of Savannah. We should talk about the black side of Savannah and she shows up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like, you know, a little bit of her story and then that section of Savannah, maybe we can cover that and that'll sort of round out that portion of her and Savannah. Yeah. Okay. I think that, I think that works. Um, so what, how are we introduced to Lady Chablis? Uh, so, so I would highly recommend you guys listen to the book. Okay. As well as read it. Particularly um, this chapter? 
particularly just everything with Shibli, the reader does a surprisingly good job. Um, and just the, now I know you didn't just say that. And just, um, that's George accent, PJ. I, I, as I remember, he, uh, the the author essentially is about to go into his apartment and Lady Shibli just sort of comes up and says, you know, well, I know you're going to give me a ride back to my apartment because you would not leave a lady in distress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he just yeah. sort of gets caught up in the whirlwind that is Shibli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think his apartment's across the street from a uh, doctor's office, which at the time when he first picks her up, he doesn't, you know, associate anything with. But as you said, she just kind of, you know, walks up, starts make kind of making fun of his car about what's a what, what's a nice young white guy like you driving an, an old beater. I know, and he has just uh, bought this car. Yeah, so he has just bought this massive land boat. Um, I don't remember exactly. I want to say it's like a massive Oldsmobile that, you know, probably has, you know, some different wheels or rims put on it. Um, I just sort of imagine it being... Having a stereo system and not much else. It is a 1973 Pontiac Grand Prix. Oh, that is even better. Um, Now, now do you remember why he got this old, rusted beater of a car as compared to something else? To drive in. Well, To to essentially cruise. Yes, but he could have gotten a nicer car if he wanted it. But he got this car for two reasons. One, it's the first car he's ever owned. And he's going to, like, jokes with Chablis, he's going to work his way up. Two... Everyone else on the road is drunk off their ass. Yeah, I was going to say, what yeah. else are you going to drive drunk in? <laughs> like, every tree is just... I actually, saw, I actually remember this going through Savannah. Every tree just has these car dents at, at, you know, at bumper level. Just people constantly running into them. And so I, I, think, I think he gets the car for like $800 cash. Mm-hmm. Just under the assumption that inevitably someone's going to run into me drinking martinis in the front seat. Rather it be in an eight hundred dollar beater than in something nice. I was actually just talking to uh, some of the people in the lab about places that have different uh, open container laws, um, and it, it reminded me of just sort of everybody in Savannah wandering out with a to-go cup and you know enjoying their drinks in various places that just seem completely odd to the rest of us in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Not really supposed to be in cars, though. Still, like, <laughs> yeah. for the record. There are still rules about that. <laughs> like, yeah, the, you know, there, there are technically rules about that. Yeah. But uh, Chablis, you know, immediately coaxes her way into the car, and over the course of him driving her home, she proceeds to essentially flirt up a storm with him as they go. I, I feel like... A playful, the, rather than actually, I think. Yeah, but I feel like Flirt Up a Storm is is sort of underplaying uh, some of the interaction that happens in his car while he's driving her home. Please, do, go into it. Um, so he has a conversation um, about with Chablis about uh, why she was there. She was seeing a doctor getting her uh, hormone shots. And so the author sort of has this very uncomfortable realization that Chablis is male, um, to which Chablis becomes incensed and says, no, I am female. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, no ifs, ands, or but about that. Um, and proceeds to show him, the author, 
um, that that she is all female, um, at least from the waist up, to which he is very much uncomfortable with. Um, and probably, I mean, not that as somebody who's, you know, been driving for a reasonable amount of my life, I, I don't know I would be able to concentrate on the road as, as well as the author seems to have. Um, I think he's parked in a light when this is happening. Yeah. So, but she's also doing this like, like, I don't know if this is like an open top car, just has those massive old windows of like a land of a land boat would have. But when she's doing, when she's just flashing in her car, he describes how the entire world is just kind of watching from outside the car, which may just be his embarrassed assumptions as it's happening. But it really kind of embodies their relationship going forward of where she gets no small amount of pleasure at making him as uncomfortable as possible around other people. Yeah. So it was a 1970 what? 1973. 73 Pontiac Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was a uh, convertible, but I'm going to uh, choose a picture and I will send it to you guys because you do need to uh, see <laughs> a picture of this, this car. Um, it is it is the exact right car for... Uh, <laughs> For your imaginings. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I just uh, sent it in the chat. So, so the the picture that I chose is sort of an apple red. Um, yep. It is a a massive uh, sort of slung back car that the hood of the car is probably at least half of the length of the car. It has sort of a, a an imposing grill and and uh, a white top. You know that you can see this car in the south, and it would probably even have drawn eyes back then. <laughs> I, I love the excessive hood on this thing. When he described it as being like the the uh, boat deck of a ship, that was dead on. That thing is just uh, just unnecessarily massive. Um, yeah, I can. So, I'm, I'm so, just envisioning that sort of essentially swimming around the. Um, the squares in savannah yeah at a low rate of speed it makes perfect sense <laughs> um and and yeah he just sort of has a very uh i would say modern conversation about uh sex and gender and uh you know who 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 one is and mm-hmm. and who shibli is um, and he's sort of very uncomfortable with it, but she is very comfortable and very confident with who she is. And essentially within the space of, I guess I imagine a 15, 20 minute car ride, he comes to understand her side of things and accept it. And I think that's very appropriate for who she is. Yeah, and he never, he doesn't really, throughout the rest of the interactions that we get between the two of them, he never really, he never questions her identity again. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when she is dealing with other people, like, it can become uncomfortable, and, like, he is trying to figure out what to do, but between the two of them, he is, he does not question how she identifies. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think his only questions are, like, I get that you identify as female but you're dating a dude who's straight like how like how does that go and i also i guess i sort of appreciate and you know this might not be perfect but it seems to come off fairly reasonably like a okay like i have questions and she's willing to answer yeah Mm -hmm. i think so 
I find it interesting. What, the only time he, act, as you as you said, the only time he sees her as masculine after this chapter is when he's going to visit her home, when she takes him to go um, meet her um, her boyfriend, and the boyfriend's out working on the car and it's in the house, and they have an honest conversation about her background, about her relationship with her family, and for a moment she shows her more masculine side. She drops some of the uh, elements of the Empress of Savannah, and. From his perspective, it's not that you know he's seeing the real Shibley or anything else. He's now seeing an entirely different person mm-hmm. because he's associated Shibley as herself, as being um, the, the person that she presents as. And so when she drops to a different register, when she presents her face different differently, it's as if she suddenly is transformed into a different person is standing there before him. And it just really shows how much he's fully embraced her mindset and come to respect her as how, as how she chooses to be that when she no longer is representing that for a moment, it's as if that she's not even the same person. Yeah. Um, and I think it's sort of an interesting, um, it tells a little bit more about the South and about the whole story and who she is and everything else with um, basically the, the trials and tribulations that she's been through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, basically that sort of, she goes around and and the people that she interacts with and as i remember it's the um that it's when she's around blacks that she has the most problems because that's when she's most likely to be assaulted and beaten Mm -hmm. um as opposed to the the white part of savannah society and so she has chosen to uh, pursue her romantic relationships within uh, and also more associate in a social manner with the white side of Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she describes at least some time when she was romantically involved with or somebody that uh, found out that she had male genitalia and put a gun in her, her face. Yeah, um, she she offers that as an example of why she won't um, date or really associate with black guys is that she views them as too um, well, too much of a threat to herself. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, that whole dynamic is really interesting because it's not, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily come off as like a positive thing for white Savannah because part of the reason that she's accepted is because like, because she herself is black, she was already othered um, and she is a performer mm-hmm. and that is, like kind of the it's this kind of double and even triple otherness that makes her interesting and acceptable um in the way it's described in this book to kind of the white part of savannah um that she has found a little bit of a home in but that you know it's 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 still fraught and complicated oh yeah and and even there she has to wear necessary masks Mm -hmm. to uh have some measure of protection she talks he asks her well why why can't you just you know dress in a suit and tie and walk down the street what would happen then she was like i would die yeah that if i anyway tried to be openly just gay rather than transgender that would be a death knell i wouldn't make it down the street that me presenting as a woman being trans is a certain element of protection because i'm appearing as being part of the accepted binary if I in any way tried to do something that was publicly outside that, the society would shut down and shut me with it. Yeah, which I also think is sort of interesting, and I wonder if that's sort of part of when this book was written, that trans was maybe less accepted than gay, and so the author was just like, well, why can't you just be gay? 
and then there was a an explanation mm-hmm. rather than just like this is who and what I am. Yeah, that there um, has to be like some other reason other than like I would not actually be myself. That there's some sort right. of like instrumental reason out in the world. That might, yeah, that might be true. And so I, I figured I I should give a quick background. Uh, so Shabli. Uh, the Lady Chablis, also known as, um, or Brenda Dale Knox, uh, was born uh, Benjamin Edward Knox um, <laughs> in 1957. Um, and she f- frequently performed in Club One in Savannah, where she was known as the Grand Empress. Um, and then a lot of her other information is in relation to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, but also apparently featured in Bizarre Foods of America um, with Andrew Zimmerman, or Andrew Zimmern, mm-hmm. um, which I find like a very weird thing to be on. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's just a little odd thing, but didn't she say in the book that her name was Frank? Their, their their birth name was Frank. Why would the author change that? Uh, I mean, he uh, kept everything else about her. Well, yes, but also, I I think the whole like not doxing somebody was was still a thing in the mid nineties. So but he's he, he everything else he just described is accurate as to who she yeah, is. So uh, I don't know. Maybe yes and no. Um, so also she was Miss Gay World in nineteen seventy six and also Miss Dig- Dixieland. Which mm-hmm. she references um, in her introduction to our narrative. Proudly. Yes. Um, and so this would have been probably before they actually met in real life. Um, and also the Grand Empress of Savannah in 1977 and Miss Sweetheart International 1989, which I have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. But Wikipedia is happy to provide links on most things except for that one. Uh, uh- I didn't realize that Grand Empress of Savannah was actually an awarded title. I thought it was just something that she just called herself. Uh, yeah, um, it's not super helpful because um, all of the links uh, that Wikipedia <laughs> says it has about Miss Dixieland, Miss Gay World, and the Grand Empress of Savannah are not actually links. So I apologize, uh, Spencer. I blame you. Wikipedia has let me. I only have so much time to update the pages, sir. Give me more time. Uh, but... One, two other things. Well, one other thing I find very interesting about her character is one of the things that's said very early in the story is that among the many things that Savannah can accept and can't accept is that it cannot accept um, mixed relations, um, mixed open relations between black people and white people in terms of romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. That if it happens, it has to be hidden. I didn't see any element that Chablis and her boyfriend in any way hiding their relationship. It appears to be very much open and out there. Um, was there any indication that, that they were, you know, being cagey and hiding with that they were together? I would say a little bit hiding that they were together, but I would bet money that the genders involved are true. incredibly important. Very true. Yeah. And so that it was a white man and is what's important. Yeah. Uh, very true. Very true. I think I think that that's fair. I also think. And I, I think that that's right and a very important point to bring up. I also think that, you know, it's it can be, over the course of this book, tricky to figure out in any given situation what the narrator or anyone talking means when they say Savannah. Um, mm-hmm. 
because we certainly see that there are like a multitude of very different savannas that you could be interacting with at any given point in time. And so we could, that could be talking specifically about sort of like high savanna that we get with Jim Williams and his whole narrative, which is mm-hmm. very different from the savanna that we get in other moments. Um, throughout uh, I, I, I would so I think that is tricky and unclear um, and difficult to tease out. Uh, I agree. I think the, the, when we had that described, they were specifically talking about high savannah with that, um, the couple of where the uh, their son brought back their college roommate and she just, you know, picked him up and was dating him for years afterwards. I think they were talking about high savannah there. But even in this story of when she's talking about going to see her boyfriend's family and convincing them that, that she's pregnant and their immediate reaction is to give her the money for the abortion, yeah. presumably because she's black. Yeah. Uh, um, there, There is still, even if it's viewed as more acceptable, even if it's something that could at least happen and open, there's still things that just don't happen in any aspect of Savannah of the South that they're operating on. At least, at least doesn't appear so. Yeah. Um, um, I, I feel like this is a really good segue into one of the vignettes that we get with uh, the Lady Chablis and the, uh, I guess, Black Society Savannah? Yeah, the sort of like alternative debutante ball. Yes. Yeah. Happening um, the day after like the debutante ball in Cotillion? Yeah, and so we, I think, initially get introduced to this uh, part of Savannah, which I, I don't. Well, I I talked about in the last episode of the mind not understanding what a cotillion is and and whatever else that's associated <laughs> with that, um, and that being in reference to Jim Williams' uh, Christmas parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so apparently the cotillion ball was a big thing in, uh, white society in Savannah. And this gets brought up with, um, somebody else. And, and now I'm blanking on, on who it is. Um, give us a hint. I, I don't remember who John Barrett mentions the, the cotillion ball. Um, and it might've been in reference to uh one of the people that was helping out jim williams Uh, like somebody mentioned that there's a black uh equivalent to the cotillion ball Mm -hmm. right yeah no i don't remember who it is but i i do remember what you're talking about he learns essentially from somebody in white high savannah society right Actually, uh, either I want to say like the caterer. It or... was the caterer. It was um, okay. That Jim Williams always had at his parties. Yes. Yeah, and who's basically like, oh, well, the real party. We have important <laughs> stuff going on. The real party yeah. is going on with the um, the betas, the alpha betas, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so this uh, black fraternity essentially decided that they would have a debutante ball and so the wives of the black fraternity choose high school students that ha- are accepted to college and uh, have sort of Im- impeccable records which again I don't really want to delve deep into that it's a yeah um, long and fraught conversation even within kind of the course of the book right yeah yeah um it it was very not modern yeah um shall we say but they essentially Mm -hmm. have to be judged by this like whole coterie of outside people um as having impeccable moral standards and an impeccable um moral background Mm -hmm. and i 
I find it very interesting is they're describing like the background and history of this, of just, they go very much into the racial background behind all of this, about how they originally were excluded from any major venue. They originally weren't reported in any of the papers. And the response of the guy that he's talking to is just to celebrate, you know, how far they've come rather than to express any degree of anger, outrage of this, of all the problems that they were enduring for years to even get to the point that they're at, which I think comes maybe from perspective of a, uh, most of the people that are operating as part of this debutante ball, or whatever else we call it, um, are very much on the higher end of black society. They are the wealthy, they are the established, there is, Chablis points out, the lighter skinned as well, which has a certain racial element as, uh, to it. Yeah, and it's a viewpoint that um, was taken up by by some people where it's like, we can improve and I say we, you know, the the black community can improve themselves in such a way somehow that the white society will have to accept them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a very, like looking back, it's a it's an uncomfortable uh, view from every side. Um, and I I feel like there was one major proponent on of this idea that has fallen from grace in so many ways um and so yeah finish the thought um i i I believe cosby was a a major yeah proponent of this Uh, he comes with figured you're going there more more baggage than than we have time on on this uh (laughs) that's its own podcast right there podcast podcast channel and just in general so i i want to leave that as quickly as possible well in Um, terms in terms of people who stand in this book to rebut that particular mindset and rebut the um misguided pretension associated with it we've got lady chablis front and center ready to speak on it yeah and so um basically i brought this up because the next one of the major times that we get to see lady chablis is when uh john barrett is invited by the uh essentially the mc of this debutante ball mm-hmm. um i don't remember if he's a doctor or a lawyer he's some you know sort of major pillar of the black community in savannah and he's Dr. Of, Collier. Uh, of the uh fraternity of black businessmen and and basically runs this whole thing he invites john barrett to this debutante ball Mm-hmm. And John basically says, well, I don't really have a date. And I guess he mentions this to Chablis at some point. It was a dumb call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and she basically says, oh, you got to bring me. And he very valiantly says, no, I'm not going to do this. And she goes, yeah, about that. <laughs> well, and he does, he does go initially without her. Yeah. Yes. He's going. He's going stag. Um, but finds very shortly thereafter that Shipley has just decided to crash the party. And basically, she spends the entire party undercutting the trappings of the debutante ball that are sort of a very thin facade of what this debutante ball is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And does it in a whirlwind of destruction. That doesn't quite bring the party down, but I would, I, I am uncomfortable reading about what she does at this party. <laughs> Being that I would have 
been very uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I would have had to, I would have just had to leave. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be there. Um, yeah, so she goes around, um, essentially, uh, well, she flirts with, dances with, seduces many of the male escorts there. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of works her way around the room in that process. Um, and mm-hmm. then also, I think snarky I think is a little bit of an of an understatement, but she is she offers up, um, I'm sure, really well intentioned and thought out um, advice, <laughs> advice and commentary <laughs> to all of the girls uh, who are coming out yeah, in yeah. this process, right? And I think she really calls out the um, the problems with what this debutante ball is mm-hmm. um, in that it's maybe not racially biased, but there is a skin color bias that, you know, she, she talks about her successes and uh, maybe imagined successes, but also um, talks about what these girls actually want to do as opposed to what essentially their fathers are forcing them to do yeah. um, mm-hmm. and how the escorts that are taking them are often uh either their siblings or other essentially men in this society that aren't really their boyfriends and how they're sort of being paraded and primped and being forced to be something they're not because um this is what some part of savannah society has decided is going to be uh important to them mm-hmm. yeah and um, I think that somewhere on the various Wikipedia pages that I read, this is a uh, a Greek audience, like a sort of where yeah, a sort of chorus yeah, um, yeah, a Greek mm-hmm. chorus. Sorry, um, yeah, where she's sort of calling out like what's what's really going on, right? Yeah, there to mock the pretensions of the, the more major characters or whatever else. Yeah, and she um, and she certainly cuts a swath through this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and like you said, BJ, it never quite falls apart, but it is always right on the edge of it. And particularly, we as readers are seeing it through John Barron's eyes, who tried to get her to not come, was unsuccessful in getting her to not come. Um, she refuses to not talk to him throughout the whole thing. Like, he has been doing everything in his power to distance himself from the situation, and he just... He just can't. Um, and so we are kind of there experiencing that with him, which is awful. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I guess, I Spencer, I, I hate to call you out, but I feel like you are the... Where are we going with this one? Go on. The most likely to be in a situation like this. Go on. Um, and for... And, and I feel like I, I'm calling you out and putting you on the stop the spot but i i do feel like um i i remember pictures of you with a large clock around your neck mm-hmm. um but i do imagine you in certain parties where you don't feel like you quite fit in or why you're there and then somebody else at the party just makes it more intense you're, you're essentially describing the last 33 years of my life but <laughs> If you like you're going to name a little specific, more specific examples. <laughs> That's just kind of how the how each day goes, really, for me. But uh, yes, for me in particular, I was dying inside with the main character here, particularly by the end, because you know we we, talk, we talked about that she's 
being disruptive, but in a way that everyone's just still kind of amused or staring, but not the party's not shutting down. But by the end, when you know he's convinced her that we're leaving here soon, she sits down at the table with him and proceeds to claim to be like one of the one of the debutantes is a cousin of hers, and proceeds to just start making up this elaborate backstory of all of the things that she's hidden, the abortions, the crimes, everything else that she was somehow able to hide from people before this particular uh, vetting process occurred. By that point, if they didn't, if they weren't planning on leaving in like five or six minutes, the, we were reaching the point of when the party would have imploded around her. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I also love how she just sort of, she knows that it's coming. And she also makes reference in this party about how, oh, and I have a chauffeur and he's white. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is referencing the first chapter where we, we meet her and she basically demands a ride from from the author. And calls mm-hmm. him her chauffeur kind of throughout right. our interactions and, with them. Yeah. And essentially, like, most of her interactions with the author are getting rides home from her appointment back to her house and having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so this is where she found out about the party. And so this is sort of where she calls him out, mm-hmm. calls the author out and, and basically says, I get that you're super uncomfortable yeah. and I'm going to allow you to leave, but you are, I'm going to call you my chauffeur in front of everybody, even if they don't know it. Well, right. and one of the, one of the brilliant things about this whole scene is that it is unclear from the very beginning of her entering into this event, whether her main priority is to undercut the kind of black debutante society that she is very rightfully calling out as well, or Mm -hmm. to get back at John Barrett. Like both of those things are happening and it's unclear what is her primary motive. Um, Oh, little a column A, little a column B there. Yeah. I mean, I... She definitely is looking to a certain measure of revenge against him, but from what we've seen of her in in prior chapters, she's irrepressible. If she has a viewpoint, if she views something as wrong, she's not going to hide it. Mm -hmm. And clearly her views about this particular debutante ball are deeply ingrained and long held. Like we saw in some of her earlier chapters with the the local club that she um, dances and performs at, of when she's encouraging him to come see her because she assumes she's going to get fired this week. Or at least it's very possible. Because the manager is straight up shorting, not, I mean, she gets paid well enough, and she's annoyed that he's shorting her, but she's very much offended on behalf of the other members of um, the performance group, the other, the other staff that are there. They get paid a pittance compared to her, and are continually being shafted by the manager about their performances. So much of what we see about Chibli is that she has this kind of honest, ingrained motivation that when she sees something wrong, when she sees something that's not right in the world, her immediate reaction is to confront it. So I, I don't I can't imagine that if he'd even invited her, if she, if he'd even brought her as her date, that she would have been able to contain herself entirely, that she's too offended by what's going on in this room right now. Um, I think that, that that is very much part of her character that we see. And I very much agree with you, Spencer. Um, and I, I feel like we sort of glossed over that she was a uh, nightclub performer mm-hmm. um, and that whole sort of story inside of her. Um, but I also feel like it doesn't add that much to her character, but that is like, we do get to see that 
uh, sort of shining white knight that she sticks up for uh, people that are in a similar situation to that mm-hmm. to to hers, and that she does have that very honest and just streak to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question that I have for the two of you, and I'm not really sure what my answer is, but <laughs> I, I have what, a better get? answer given that I looked at the IMDb page. <laughs> okay. Um, how well do you actually think that she fit in at this debutante ball? What was the? Can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. How well do you think she fit in at this debutante ball? Well, I mean, I think she's distinctly older than a lot than most of the debutantes would be, but she still could just be a guest. I mean, the, the author takes pains to describe her as being a very attractive woman, that he is immediately taken with her, that he's almost he's distinctly uncomfortable for about two or three chapters how much he is does view her as very attractive given what he now knows that she's well, trans. So, I mean, her dress is apparently stellar. We talked about that at the show, that her dresses cost her a small fortune and are visually very much impressive, and everyone compliments with them when she's there. In terms of her overall appearance and bearing and style, she's a trained performer. She knows how to put on a good show. She knows how to put on a good presentation. So I think all of those would work pretty well with her fitting in well at the, uh, at the event. Yeah. Um, so I, I just sent you a picture um, in the... Uh the Skype chat and I believe that's from the uh movie and so like I think at least from that picture like I can see her fitting in very well but I guess my question and and Sarah I'm gonna make you talk next is (laughs) is like how how much at least from the reading did you envision that she fit in because I guess from the reading like I envisioned that she kind of fit in but like the dress that she was wearing was a little bit too revealing mm-hmm. and just a little bit too she was just a little bit too much of all of the things yeah. mm-hmm. to quite fit in and that was part of the author's discomfort sure. but i guess it's like what what do you think everybody else in the party felt and i guess i have that like it could either be like oh this totally is like the more fashionable cousin that's you know the slits a little bit too high and you can almost see her butt but she's from atlanta or like whatever the story <laughs> right is, you know right? But- you know, but she oh, spent, time in, she spent yeah. time in Europe. She's done all of these things. Yeah. So we'll accept her yeah. anyway. Or like this doesn't quite seem right. And she's a little bit too whatever. Yeah. So my my reading was that I think that she was probably a little bit over the top, but to the, only to the extent that like eyebrows were raised, um, mm-hmm. but not necessarily that anyone questioned her presence there. Um my yeah my reading was that like she had um some questionable choices and actions um that did raise some eyebrows in the conversations and situations that she was in but that she was um kind of in character and in the situation enough in the moment that um certainly if you were like across the room you wouldn't have thought anything of it and so it's you know it's a little unclear I think that one of the things John Barrett does in this scene is like his anxiety about the situation mm-hmm. comes through so much in the writing that I think he overblows what the actual ripple effect of her presence was. Um, mm-hmm. I think that she's certainly someone who can steal a room, but I didn't get the sense outside of um, Barrett's own kind of neuroses 
um, that she was stealing the room in a, in a negative or off-putting or um, even particularly questionable way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think we can even see that in just how other characters interact with her before mm-hmm. she starts trying to, you know, make a bit of a scene of when, you know, people come up to her to compliment her. They compliment her on her appearance. They enjoy a, a nice, polite conversation with her for some time before she starts to, you know, insert little needles in the situation as, as she goes on. So it, it seems like that if if they're in any way raising eyebrows, it's not to the point of being uncomfortable with it. They're just like, oh, well, isn't that interesting? Pushing boundaries. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I guess my reading of it was that the discomfort that the author felt and the disruption that she had on the party was as a little bit too flirty and, uh, woman of the world, Mm uh, being in the party and flirting with the, uh, escorts rather than as a trans woman that was, you know, making too much of a scene and and sort of poking at the uh, sort of racial disparity of, like, the skin color of the debutantes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I guess, a more acceptable disruption, maybe, mm-hmm. that I read it as. Um, but I feel like that's a, you know, weird spin for me to put on it. But I guess that that's how I read it. <laughs> No, I think that makes sense. I it it certainly seemed in the description that the kind of sexualized disruption that she was was a much more acceptable disruption than a socioeconomic disruption than um <laughs> you know, a racial disruption. Like in in the way that eyebrows were raised as I said, like it was relatively minor and relatively acceptable. Like that could be wrapped back into the fold of the narrative of what this event is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and so I'll bring bring back uh, a reference that we had in in the last episode um, to where uh, to the West Wing where uh, Sam's uh, friend shows up at a major White House party. Yep. And so everybody knows what's going on, but the the issue is that you know to to at least some people that that she's you know, very young and attractive, mm-hmm. not, you know, what her character is. And so I, I think that the disruption that I imagine her causing is that she's showing off too many of her assets and being too flirty with sort of everybody around. And But I feel like that's sort of the, the perfect example of her character because she just embodies that overt sexual tour de force. Mm-hmm. And just utters self-possessed confidence about herself. I mean, the, we never see in a single moment that the Lady Shipley appears uncomfortable with position, uncomfortable with who she is. It's just a, an inspiring amount of just uh, self, self-possessed self determination about her. Do we have other things that we would like to say about uh, Lady Shipley tonight? Uh, uh, I think it kind, of, <laughs> kind of wraps it up. Yeah, I, I think we uh, pretty much covered her. Uh I just, I'm trying to see if there's anything else. Um, so apparently she did some uh, performances uh, at Mama's Cabaret in Lewiston, Maine. Um, I believe she just had, you know, had an impressive number of performances. And now I'm curious if, you know, there are any recorded performances that she has that, that we could look up. Um, and apparently... She made it onto the Real Housewives of Atlanta, 
Um, and <laughs> I just now I really want to look up that show because that sounds like just the best grenade to toss into a Real Housewives of Atlanta. That is absolutely something I want to see. Did, uh, I think I read, may have read this in a news article. Didn't she die recently? Uh, relatively. Um, so September 8, 2016. Oh, okay. Um, so two years ago, but again, you know, relatively recently. Um, there wasn't, there isn't any information on Wikipedia about the cause of her death, but, uh, but yeah. Um, and so she was, I'm going to try and do math. Uh, <laughs> do, do, do they say, do they say how old she is at the time of this story? I mean, I didn't, I didn't think they really, didn't think they really presented much about that other than that she was no, older than the Debbie Johns. very unclear in the story. Um, but it would have been like mid twenties mid to late 20s i'm guessing so okay. she was born in 57 um and i believe as far as i can tell the book takes place between the late 70s and early 80s um and so yeah okay mid to late 20s is is my best guess as to her age which i would have assumed a little bit older i guess i yeah. assumed like at least late 20s early 30s mm-hmm. um but she, she comes yeah. across as very worldly. So yeah, I was I, I was assuming that she was a little bit a little bit older than that. Yeah, I I would have as well. Um, yeah, yeah, you're you're right, Spencer. She comes across as a little worldly. Although, you know, in retrospect, that might be because of the kind of like cloistered naivete of the Savannah presented here as well, right? <laughs> True. It's in contrast, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and so the other thing I guess to note is that. Um, John Barrett was born in 39, so... He's much he older is, than I thought he was. Yeah, so he's a good Gosh. about 20 years older. That's so um, strange. <laughs> yep. So, so he was like 40, 42 or something, around 40 when the story was starting. Yeah, I was going right. to peg him as being about a decade younger than that. Me I was assuming that. a young journalist. Yeah, and I guess I also just sort of assumed that he was sort of a similar age with Chablis, given their interactions. And it's very much not. And I am once I read their ages, I was a lot more discomfited by their <laughs> interactions. <laughs> well, um, one, one last thing just occurred to me about Chipotle that I just found very heartwarming was her um, was her relationship with her mom. I mean, she talks about having a very estranged relationship with her dad and her dad's side of her family, but I just I particularly enjoyed that her mom is not only fully you know loves her and embraces her, but embraces all aspects of her career too. To the point that she you knows got her pictures and um, her awards up on her wall in her home. So yeah, that was a little tidbit I found heartwarming too that she uh, had that kind of family support as well as her own worldly drive to carve her own path. Yeah, and I don't know. I just I I really like sort of everything about her character, mm-hmm. um, and it it just it it was a fun vignette. Um, I think that there were some other interesting and or real vignettes that that happened but but this was i guess a lot of fun uh, out of curiosity um assuming you had already made the mistake of letting the cat out of the bag that you're going to the debutante ball would you have invited her absolutely <laughs> i probably would have too I, I i figured it would have gone to hell in a handbasket but it would have been fun yeah and maybe maybe if you have like taken the initiative to invite her like if I, I don't know. Maybe you could contain her a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> She's not going to feel as compelled to embarrass you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, like, I can't imagine being in that situation. 
but <laughs> but I also feel like I have enough self-preservation that I would just be like, all right, I get that I need to do this. I don't know which is going to be worse, but I have to do this. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think I think we've got a few more characters maybe to discuss next week, as well as to find a way to encapsulate all of this into the character of the city of Savannah. But uh, I think that just gives us a lot of wonderful things to talk about then. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think we have at least one or two more episodes, so um, we're not going to give the next thing that we're going to read quite yet, maybe next episode or the one after that. Uh, and yeah, we'll definitely go from there. Um, and I did find the Real Housewives of uh, Savannah. <laughs> I saw your language. Of Atlanta with uh, Chablis, and it is uh, glorious. Oh, good. Interested, so. interested parties want to know. <laughs> post that on the website. Let's give the audience a chance to yes. watch that too. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to uh, post that on the website and or send it to Lee so he can send it out to uh, all of our... Uh, facebook friends well for the time being in the event that they want to go to our website bj where would they end up going so um we have a website mangumtalks.com um you can contact us and and tell us any of your thoughts your feelings your suggestions or anything else um there's a link at the upper right that says contact us um, Mangum Talks also has all of our podcasts, um, and you can also get those on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, which I use, or wherever you get your various podcasts. Um, or uh, Spencer has a carrier pigeon service where he attaches um, handwritten transcripts to vellum that he wraps around these, you know, gorgeous carrier pigeons. Um, but um, that is a a little bit longer. Uh, update rather than the immediacy of, of a normal podcast service. I've preferred the I pref- come to prefer the archaic nature of a reed basket with papyrus put in it. But you know your modern oh, fair enough. your modern virtues you speak of. I, you know I'll try them someday. Yeah, our, our modern virtues of a carrier pigeon and papyrus. Like I, I can understand that. Okay, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, we have uh, quite a number of other podcasts. Uh, GOT got questions with uh, Spencer and Lee. There is Mangum Hoops, which supposedly gets updated, but I have yet to see that with Lee and the best man at his wedding and his best friend Levi Baxter. And there's also Whiskey on the Weekends with myself, Spencer, uh, Levi, and Lee, um, where we drink and talk about things, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And we usually do that in the weekends, and we've started doing it at completely unreasonable hours of the morning for me. Um, and but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, if we want to do a week of mint juleps and martinis just to do a theme, a theme event, I'd be perfectly fine with that. How about you, BJ? Yeah, I'm sure you would. Um, and and we probably could even uh, roll this in with some, you know, Kentucky Derby or something like that to make it more uh, socially appropriate. Sounds fine. Well, well, folks, in the meantime, we're looking forward to talking more about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil next week. And uh, until then, well, we're looking forward to your comments and questions. Yeah, thanks for joining us, and uh, happy good night, everyone. Thanks, y'all.